Good morning again. It's good to be with you. Um, if you're new, thanks for coming. Um, we'd love to get to know you better. If you could hang out outside with us afterwards, we'd love that. Those of you here again, uh, it's a true privilege and honor to be with you and uh, once again to, to join in worship together on a Sunday. Um, this spring and summer for our sermon series, we're following along the life of David. And in the, as told in the book of 2 Samuel, as a quick way, quick reminder, David is a man, a human being, an ordinary human being. He's so much like us in so many ways. He wins and he loses. He pouts in frustration and he dances, dances like he's never danced before. Yet David is so extraordinary. He's not like us in so many ways. Aside from being a king in the ancient Middle East, not like us. <laughs> The New Testament mentions that David, is the name David, is mentioned 58 times in the New Testament. That's more than any other name except Jesus. And oftentimes, the New Testament calls Jesus of Nazareth by the name David, the son of David. And so we can start to think of Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of David's life. Jesus not only succeeds where David fails, Jesus Christ takes David's successes with God and multiplies them by the sum of everyone who believes in him and then some. <laughs> Last week, we started uh, looking at chapter six of Second Samuel, uh, where David kind of brings the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, his new capital. In the first half of Second Samuel chapter six, we looked at the event um, and how this event sort of spoke to our worship, that God's holiness leads to our fear and God's goodness urges on our gladness. And so worshiping the true God feels like a kind of fearful gladness or glad fear. This week we're going to continue looking at 2 Samuel 6, this time the second half of the chapter. And there in these verses we're going to look at and discover just how difficult but freeing this kind of true worship is. And so, uh, before we say our passage this morning, would you join with me in prayer to our God for these words to us this morning? Father, these are your words, um, and Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand beneath them, to sit under them. Lord, um, I can imagine this is a hard text, especially that last verse for some of the people who want to be mothers in the audience, and Lord, I pray that you'd be with them. Would you encourage them and comfort them? Lord, and Mother's Day can be so hard for so many people, um, whether it's someone who can't have a child or if it's someone who's had a mother who's passed away. And we just want to acknowledge that and we pray for comfort. And maybe even these words this morning can comfort. Uh, but Lord, it's also a time uh, of being celebrated and appreciated as a mom. And thank you uh, for the opportunity to do that in so many families. And Father, um, but I also just do pray that um, Mother's Day would be one lens by which we look at the scripture, um, Lord, and that there would be multiple other ways in which we see you at work in our lives and we see us in your story, your story of sacred history. And Jesus, would you come alive to us? Would you change the way that we see you? Would you be high and lifted up? Would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? Would we dance before you like David? even if it's just in our hearts and minds. We ask this by your word, with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In an article that turned into a book, uh, there's a soft-spoken British journalist named John Ronson, and he describes following around a group of real-life superheroes, and particularly he focuses on one superhero who lives in Seattle named Phoenix Jones. Phoenix Jones became famous for all these anonymous acts of, of heroism, right? Preventing crimes or offering emergency assistance, anything from chasing down car thieves to breaking up bar fights to changing spare tires. And all while in gold and black, head-to-toe superhero outfit costume, right? In the course of interviewing Phoenix Jones and the other kind of people that um, were these real-life superheroes, John Ronson gets curious about the costumes. And he asks this question, what does it feel like to dress up in an outfit all the time? One superhero called the Urban Avenger, who wears a weird customized gas mask with green tinted sunglasses, a red full length hoodie, and black, long black leather gloves. That's his superhero outfit. Urban Avenger uh, describes his outfit this way. When I wear this, I don't have to react to you in any way. Nobody knows what I'm thinking or feeling. It's great. I can be in my own little world in here. But dressing up and acting like a superhero is not just a play for anonymity, you know, like, don't know me. It's equally a cry for a special kind of attention. Know me, but on these terms. And so the urban avenger continues to tell John Ronson about the mask and himself. He says it this way, the person under the mask hasn't really accomplished much, but as a superhero in the mask, I can go out and do something. I can feel like a better person, kind of. I love that honest kind of at the end there. One of my favorite parts. Anyway, the journalist Ronson continues, concludes this, something else besides the goodwill and the anonymity, something else is evidently propelling these real life superheroes. It's a narcissism. It's an odd sort of narcissism, of course, when the narcissist disguises their face, but the lust for fame and glory is unmistakable. This is the this dynamic that John Ronson is trying to get at in describing real-life superheroes like the Urban Avenger or Phoenix Jones. This dynamic about how we do relationships is at play in all of us. No, we don't literally dress up head to toe in sort of vulcanized rubber, flashy suits of, of, of rubber or leather. We don't dress up socially, but we do actually do dress up socially for each other, right? <laughs> we wear our emotional disguises with each other, don't we? Our mask doesn't have to be made out of gold and black, rubber or tinted retrofit gas masks of green to be a mask. We all wear masks, less obvious, less physical, but masks nonetheless. And we wear these social and emotional masks to hide from each other, to push people away from knowing us. And we also wear these social and emotional masks to get flattering attention, to pull people in toward us. I appreciate the way that Christian counselor Dan Allender describes the way that we dress ourselves up in our relationships, in his book, The Healing Path. He says it this way, we each have a style or a mode of interacting with our world. We use this style to regulate how close other others may, may be to us and how far they may withdraw. If people get 
too close, we usually feel the awkward rise of shame. If they get too far from us, we often feel loneliness and loss. And so most of us, most people, most of the time, you and me, real life superheroes, John Ronson, we all mask up. We project an image, an image that is anonymous enough to keep people at a distance so I don't get shamed and accomplished and attractive enough that it will draw people close so I don't get left all alone. We are cold or shallow, so you don't go there with me. But we're also competent or friendly, so you'll be there for me. Well, in our passage this morning, David has gotten a sense of God's holy goodness and a taste of God he's seen and heard and felt from the ark of his presence. This taste of God's aliveness has made David fully remove the masks he usually wears. God as God has interrupted David's self-preoccupation loop. David has taken his hands down from guarding his face and he's flinging them all around in rhythm. And for this extended parade of a moment, David has stopped grooming himself in the mirror of other people's eyes, and he is nearly naked, hair a mess, leaping and whirling, snapping his fingers, fist pumping to the sacred music march. But David's wife, Michal, is not amused. In fact, she is disgusted at David's openness. She's standing at the window, fully suited up, double or even triple masked, looking down at it all. And all she feels, she feels the eyes on her and the eyes on David, and she wants the feeling of honor without that being uncovered feeling. All that self-important desire fuels her shame and her shaming. And so at the heart of 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 through 23, is a two-part invitation to us. First, will you and I choose to see ourselves before the Lord in his eyes? Will you and I choose to see ourselves before the Lord in his eyes? Second, will we remove our masks of shame in order to live in freedom and celebration? Will we remove our masks of shame to live in freedom and celebration? Standing in God's love, removing our social and emotional masks is a process. And we can ask three questions of our process as we see it in the story of David's entrance into Jerusalem. First, verses 14 through 16, why do we wear masks? Second, verses 14 through 19, what does not wearing a mask look like? Third, and finally, verses 20 through 23, how do we not wear a mask? So we're gonna look at why, what, and how. The why, what, and how of celebrating God in this life. Let's begin with the first point of our outline, verses 14 through 16, and why we wear masks. Also, I'm gonna say the word masks a lot, and you're gonna think I'm making some sort of COVID commentary. I'm not, I'm talking about a different kind of mask. So if you um, want to picture face masks some of the time, that's fine, you're wearing one, I'm not right now. 
maybe I feel uncovered right now. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but also think about superhero masks or whatever kind of masks also would be helpful too. Anyway, let's begin with our passage. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, these are building off of verses 1 through 13. And it's hard to understand what David's dancing is actually about and what the people are shouting for without understanding what the ark of the Lord is all about. And so briefly, because we talked about this last week, the ark of the Lord served as a visible, physical place, something like a pen on a GPS map, a physical street address for where God lived and, con and it contained proofs of God's words to us, of God's forgiveness for us, and God's daily bread for us. And so David and the people of Israel are excited to be near God. They, to have more regular access to this God who speaks and pardons and feeds us with good things. And really, that, all this is just to say that God is described as a spiritual person who is huge and perfect. He's the mom and dad we wished for but never really had. God's the best friend we wish we were and often wish we had. God is Jesus Christ, the sibling who's the older brother, who goes after us when we run away, who leaves the party at God's side to see where we went, to ask what's the matter, and then invite us back inside when we're pouting outside. That's the who of true worship, and that, that God has proved in our history and time and time again, even in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the who drives David to tear off all his masks and let the celebration of God rip in verses 14 through 16, right? That's the how of true worship. You see, the who of worship motivates the how of worship. God's holy, life-crackling goodness moves David to strip off his royal robe, get down to his priestly undergarments, and just dance, 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 just dance. He's leaping like a shooting star, right? Running in place in front of the ark. He's spinning on one foot. He's doing the wobble and the cha-cha-cha electric slide in the very presence of God. He's like the flower girl or the ring bearer at a wedding reception. David is just feeling the goodness of that moment with his God, the bridegroom. But as wonderfully as David is celebrating good times, come on now. This joyful energy is such a great picture of the feeling behind worship that can sometimes happen. Verse 16 does remind us that we are never so open to shame as when we are open to life. We are never so open to shame as when we are open to life. And this is why we so often scramble at just those moments to put that mask back on again or for the first time. Mikal, who's not dancing, who's literally looking down at David, dancing with all his might. And we see her and we're told what happens. She despised him in her heart. And we intuitively get this moment. Look, I have never danced in worship procession with blaring ram's horns 
and following a wooden box into Jerusalem. That has not been my life, but I get this scene. Do you know why I get this scene? I bet you get this scene. It's because I have danced in front of other people who are not dancing, and when the music stops, I watch them looking at me. And I get what that feels like. And I want to step to the edge and put on the mask and posture confidence or hide in anonymity again. In his memoir, The World's Largest Man, Harrison Scott Key describes this feeling beautifully. He's out with his wife in public and they're at some bar or party or festival and the music gets going and Harrison can't stop but gyrate his hips, right? Against his will sometimes, he just starts moving his hips awkwardly and he calls out to his wife, come on. And she says, what's wrong with you? And Harrison replies, I can't help it, my body does things. And then he writes, and her body would do other things, such as slink away in horror. And that's funny, right? But it's also funny sad in a way, isn't it too? John Ronson, that journalist I quoted earlier, confesses it's the fear of getting shamed that makes Halloween parties so enjoyable for him. You get to wear a mask all night. And the mystery and the anonymity completely eliminates social anxiety. Our fears that someone will despise us and slink away at horror when they discover who we really are. But verse 16 is not just talking about Michal trying to shame David in the present moment. It's also hinting at Michal's past sense of shame. Notice how Michal is not just called the wife of David, but the daughter of Saul. That phrase holds so much, and it's so used on purpose by the author. It's referring back to the story of a fragile woman, a woman who has been passed like a political football back and forth between her father and two husbands. Remember long ago in 1 Samuel 18, verse 20 told us Michal loved David. She proved her love by helping David escape from her father Saul and his henchmen. And after David fled, Saul married Michal off to another man, Paltiel, who followed Michal, weeping in the streets when David demanded his first wife back. And I just want you to sit in that place with her, to be jerked around like this, to have your love played with like this, must have caused Michal so much shame. Shame enough to redirect her self-despising squarely at David dancing. That triggered feeling pushed her to wear her mask, the cold, proper, powerful, and royally put together mask. Like all of us, when we feel the pain of our past press into the present moment, Mikhail reaches for a friend, that familiar mask that we can put on and be anything, whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. I can be whatever you want. To quote the Phoebe Bridgers song, Halloween. And so we fully expect to move in our passage from Mikhail's contempt to her sarcastic confrontation with David, but instead we get what almost feels like an intermission in verses 17 through 19. Here David plays the part of a king and a priest. He offers sacrifices for his people to God. Verse 17, he blesses them. Verse 18, David gives them treats, meats and cakes. 
verse 20. And what feels like a continuation of verses 14 through 16, David's joyful dancing and leaping transforms into sort of an overflowing generosity. And this section of 2 Samuel chapter 6 gives us a fuller picture of what not wearing a mask looks like. Our second point this morning. Despite feeling the heat of Mikhail's scornful staring simmering in the background, we primarily feel and see David's unrelenting freedom to be fully present in the moment in worship. And this freedom looks like a vocation of bearing beauty and a habit of being open. I'll take those two one at a time. Cynically, it's really easy to dismiss what David is doing here. He's bringing an object that's central to the worship of Israel to his new capital, and then he gives out blessings and food treats. Just another savvy politician. But David, from verses 14 to 19, is self-forgetful, so much so that he's wide open to disdain. David's nearly naked, almost almost reckless self-presentation suggests he's after something more, after something more than power politics. He's literally bearing beauty, God's ark. Reminds me of a blog post that became semi-popular at the end of last year. There's a writer and professor named Alan Jacobs who kind of weighs in on this conversation that the church is having about how does the church engage our cultural moment? How do we engage the world? And he called to mind a scene near the end of the Lord of the Rings where Denethor, the steward of the king of the, of the city of Gondor, suspects Gandalf, the wizard, of playing politics. He assumes Gandalf is just trying to will to power, to rule Gondor for himself. But Gandalf replies to the steward of Gondor by saying this, the, realm of, the rule of no realm is mine, neither Gondor nor anywhere else. It's not what I do. I'm not here to rule. I'm here to try to nourish and care for all the good things I find in this world. When I come across something that is alive and capable of bearing beauty, then I want to nurture that. That's my call. And if anything survives that can flower and bear fruit in the days after, then my work will not have been in vain, for I also am a steward. Gandalf has a calling, a mission to nourish anything good, alive, and beautiful. King David has a mission. He's a mission. God is the most alive and good and beautiful thing and person he can imagine. And he wants to bring God to himself and to his people. Does that sound foolish to you? Maybe that sounds like really romantic and idealistic in your life. Bearing beauty, nurturing and encouraging beauty in my family, or in my workplace, or in my classroom, or in the, or in the neighborhood. And it, maybe it makes you want to mask up, to just talk about new sports and weather again. But perhaps living without a mask as an individual or church looks like publicly not trying to rule, not trying to exercise power over others but instead living maskless is to identify and to care for God's beauty everywhere that we see it. 
Another application of living without a mask looks like cultivating a habit of openness. I really appreciate the way that a former seminary professor of mine, Sharon Hirsch, describes it. It says, being open, it looks like this. Being open to God finding you means that you keep showing up, you keep listening, you keep reading and meditating, even if there seems to be no answer. And then Sharon Hirsch tells a story, a story to explain what she means by being open to God. And the story is this. Sharon has a client named David. And David has a hard personal history. Things were done to him as a child that should never have been done. And he continues to act those things out as an adult. As part of his healing, David regularly goes to church. And one day at church, at the end of the service, there's a call for him to come forward. Anyone who needs prayer to come forward. And he's in the balcony and he thinks twice, but he decides I'm gonna go and take a risk. And he walks all the way down to the very front and he, and he finds an old man who's willing to pray for him. And David can't remember this, this old man's name, but he does remember that he's got the starched white button down shirt. And David can remember falling against this stranger and hugging him tight and beginning to cry. And David remembered this old man just quietly praying for him. And after several minutes, the prayer ended and David pulled away from this man's chest. And then he saw it. He, his blood was all down the old man's white shirt. David didn't know how it happened. Maybe he hit his nose. He wasn't sure, but David began to apologize over and over and over again. And the older man stopped him and he just gently said, it was my pleasure and my privilege to pray for you. It was at that moment, David got it right then. He believed that Jesus had bled and died for him because he loved him. David felt forgiven in that moment. For Sharon Hirsch's David, it was a prayer at the front ending in a bloody nose. For the Bible's King David, it was the day when the Ark of the Lord marched into Jerusalem. How about for us? What are the seemingly small choices, the habits of openness, where you got it right then? Are we willing to keep the mask off with God and give him access to our hearts? And I guess the question really becomes, do we want that kind of freedom? How badly do we want to be that kind of open and generous in our lives? And then are we willing to endure the inevitable criticism and contempt that will come our way by opening ourselves up? And we see this criticism and contempt from someone else, for someone else's openness in verses 20 through 23. But in these same verses, we also see a way to withstand this attack. And so we get our third and final point. How? How do we not wear masks in this life? In verse 20, Mikhail gives us a taste of how ashamed, how ashamed people will shame, how hurt people hurt others. And she greets David with a sarcastic speech. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fools shamelessly uncovers himself. Mikhail is referencing the fact that David was likely only dressed in something like a long t-shirt that was tied at his hips. And so when he leapt and when he spun and when he kicked at the sky, he would have exposed his naked nether region to the eyes of every slave woman. And so he is shameless in her eyes. 
like a flasher, shameless like a drunk man in a kilt at the Highland Games. And I want to remind you, we are never so open to shame when we are open to life. And it hurts so bad when someone mocks us in an unguarded moment or he points out how naked we looked without a mask or she reminds us of how foolish our freedom looks to others, how loud we laughed or how sensitive we are or how young or how pathetic or how dumb. But listen to the way that David redefines honor and dignity. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be, by them I shall be held in honor. David is reminding himself and reminding Michal of whose eyes he cares about the most. He's celebrating before the Lord. David cares most about how God sees him. And he knows God has chosen him, David. And so in God's eyes, David has dignity and honor and status. Enough esteem that it's obvious even to the people who are the lowest and the least. And then David tells us the secret of the universe. Honor is not, is, is not earned, it's given. Honor is not earned, it's given. And the best kind of honor, grace. Grace runs downhill. So David can be shameless, not because he doesn't care what other people think, but because he cares much, much more about what God thinks than this self-promotional world. And so what does God think of us? Is his primarily concern about whether we're winning or losing the Lake Norman beauty pageant? whether you're living your best life now in front of other people's eyes? No. God honors us when we think we're too bad and don't deserve his love. God honors us when we think we're too good and we don't need his love. His esteem for us is given, not earned. How do we know that? How can I say that because God made himself contemptible by becoming a man, a poor peasant. And this Jesus abased himself in the eyes of the rich and the powerful, Jews and Romans alike of his day by loving the unlovely and worshiping freely before his God. Jesus died as a sacrificial offering, the burnt offering and the peace offering for our ashamed sins of despair and for our shaming sins of pride. And this means when we mask up to be anonymous enough that we'll keep everyone at a distance, that's when God runs towards us and he hugs us and all of our ashamed feelings. And when we mask up and we get accomplished enough and we get attractive enough that it will draw people close, that's when God reminds us that he's already there and we're not alone. And full disclosure, you don't mostly realize this about God until you choose not to wear a mask, at least some of the time. And sometimes life's circumstances just rip that mask right off your face. And it's the best thing that can happen to us sometimes. At the end of his GQ article, and that turned into a book about real life superheroes, John Ronson 
tells us about Phoenix Jones's suit and mask and that they were taken. They were taken out of his custody and his real name was leaked to the public. And John Ronson checks in and just asks Phoenix Jones how he's doing, how he's handling this new reality. And Phoenix Jones responds this way. You're not a superhero until you take the mask off. Think about it. Batman wasn't Batman until he was also Bruce Wayne. Phoenix Jones isn't Phoenix Jones until he's also the other man. You can't stay masked forever, he says. I wanted to, sure, but now I can do a lot of stuff I couldn't do before. There's so many opportunities to do good to others and to be known I never thought would open up. That's the invitation of our passage. Let's pray about it. Father, thank you for these words to us, um, for the discomfort of them, but also the comfort of them. Thank you for the ways that, the invitation that's here, the invitation to be like this, starting with you and building towards others. Lord, and I pray that you would work in our hearts and nurture and encourage us towards this end. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you work in us? Would you remind us of your love? Amen.